Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Today's episode is a special one, dedicated to the Equal Rights Amendment. After 36 years, Congress finally held a hearing in April on the ERA, which I was fortunate enough to attend. It was a powerful day, and both women and men spoke to the importance of getting this amendment passed. In this episode, you'll hear from Representative Carolyn Maloney, my friend Kate Kelly, a human rights attorney. Kimberly Johnson, an author and activist, and many more voices on why this is so crucial and why we need the ERA now. Hi, this is Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney from New York, and I'm fighting to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, and I fight for the rights of women and all marginalized genders. I'm Kimberly Johnson, and I'm fighting for the ERA. Sorry, Sorry, not not sorry. sorry. It was almost a hundred years ago in 1923 that Alice Paul, a leader of the women's suffrage movement, first introduced to the public an idea of what would eventually become the proposed Equal Rights Amendment. The rising voices of women, the passage of civil rights laws, and the power of organized labor all helped to build momentum in the 70s when it passed Congress. This has been a lifetime campaign for many of us a lifetime campaign. It doesn't start in 1923 with Alice Paul, actually. Um, We have been an afterthought in this country since the beginning of this country. The Constitution instructs that after a proposed amendment receives the required two-thirds of the vote in each of the houses, it has to be ratified by three-quarters of the states. After the ERA was sent to the states in 72, it was ratified by 35 of the necessary 38 state legislatures. But for decades, that extraordinary progress toward equality stalled. A well-organized counter-movement scared the American people into thinking that a guarantee of equality would somehow harm women who stay at home to raise their children and would erode American families. What had started as a matter of broad consensus became another divisive issue in the culture wars. So my interest in the Equal Rights Amendment happened after Me Too sort of went big. And... People kept telling me, like, what what comes next? What happens next with Me Too? And so I started doing a lot of research on, you know, the the women's rights and the the women's rights movement and learned about the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, this was, what, two years ago? And it just seemed like as I was reading about it, like, what? Of course, like, this is such a no-brainer. And I think I was very much like the 85% of Americans who think women are protected in the Constitution other than the 19th Amendment. So I just assumed that there was something already in there to protect us. So that's, that's where my interest came from. Where did your interest come from? So I was raised Mormon. So I learned about the Equal Rights Amendment as though it were evil. The Mormon Church played a very pivotal role in killing the original fight for the Equal Rights Amendment. And uh, there was a woman who led what's called Mormons for the ERA, and she was excommunicated from the Mormon Church as a result, and it was this really big story. And so I remember learning about her. Her name is Sonia Johnson, as though she was this evil, terrible heretic because she wanted equal rights for women in the Constitution, and she defied the church. And my grandmother, so the Mormon church organized women in every state to oppose the ERA. And they kind of appointed a person, a point person for media in each state to be anti-ERA. And my grandmother was the anti-ERA point person for the Mormon church in the state of Arizona. Let's back up a little bit. Can you explain to our listeners about a little bit about the history of the Equal Rights Amendment? Yeah. So the Equal Rights Amendment was written in 1923 by a woman named Alice Paul, who fought really, really uh, vociferously for the 19th Amendment. Alice Paul sort of 
ramped up the rhetoric and included fasting and all of these different protest tactics that she had learned in the UK, brought it back to the US and then really, really uh, sealed the deal on the 19th Amendment. As soon as the 19th Amendment was passed, Alice Paul and others began planning and scheming and uh, organizing for what would come next for women. So Alice Paul introduced the Equal Rights Amendment in 1923 in Seneca Falls. And every year from 1923 onward, the Equal Rights Amendment was introduced in Congress. In fact, it was on the platforms of both political parties, both Republicans and Democrats, until it passed in 1972. So it had this kind of wide bipartisan support, and then the women's movement came along and really catapulted it into fruition. By the end of this century, I hope this nation will be a place where men and women can freely choose their life's work without restrictions and without ridicule. I once thought the women's movement belong more to my daughters than to me, but I have come to know that it belongs to women of all ages. I am proud to say, and I want you to know, that Texas was the ninth state to ratify the right of women to vote, and the, and the seventh state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. So as we march today, remember, forward together, backward never. It passed in 1972, uh, but Congress put a deadline on it. And we can talk more about the deadline. Uh, but there was a seven-year deadline Initially, uh, in 1978, Congress voted to extend the deadline. So they extended the deadline to 1982, and it passed um, in 35 of the states. So according to Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, an amendment to the Constitution has to be passed in Congress and ratified by three-fourths of the states. So that's 38. So we came to 35, and the deadline expired. So we were just three states short in 1982. I was born in 1980, so a lot of people my age and younger don't even know about the ERA because the main fight for it really died off before we were born. And then, uh, fast forward where we're at now, uh, the 27th Amendment is the most recent amendment, and that amendment has to do with congressional pay raises. It was proposed by James Madison as part of the original Bill of Rights and didn't make it through. But that amendment eventually got ratified in the 1990s. So 203 years later, after it was proposed, uh, the 27th Amendment was ratified. So that gave a lot of uh, hope for equal rights advocates all around the country to say, okay, if over 200 years later, an amendment can be ratified, you know, less than 40 is not really that big of a deal. So the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment um, really centered around this three-state strategy. So getting those three additional states that we lacked in the beginning to ratify. In 2017, after the women's movement uh, and the women's march and Me Too and all these different um, sort of a resurgence of the women's movement, a senator in Nevada, Pat Spearman, who's this incredible queer black uh, preacher and a senator in Nevada revived the fight and ratified the ERA in Nevada. On March 22nd, 2017, 45 years after the ERA was submitted to Congress, Nevada became the first state to ratify the ERA after the expiration of the June 30th deadline. The state of Illinois followed with ratification on May the 30th. It was my great privilege to sponsor Senate Joint Resolution 2, which supported Nevada's ratification in 2017. When this resolution was discussed, one of the questions always asked, is the ERA necessary? And I continue to see evidence of the need for the ERA every day. In a 1997 article in the William & Mary Journal of Women and Law, they concluded 
that the need for a federal equal rights amendment remains as compelling today as it was in 1978, when the now Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote in the Harvard Women's Law Journal, with the Equal Rights Amendment, we may expect Congress and the state legislators to take undertake in earnest, systematically and pervasively, the law revised so long deferred. And in the event of legislative default, the courts will have an unassailable basis to apply the bedrock principle, all men and women are created equal. Pay equity, or maybe I should say pay inequity, is still a significant concern. Although the gender pay gap is narrowing, according to the Pew Research Center, women of the United States earn just 80 cents, 80% of what their male counterparts earn. Women of color, black women typically, make only 60%, and Latinas make only 50% of what white, non-Hispanic male counterparts make. A common, work, a common theme of workforce issues for women is the lack of paid leave and affordable child care. In Nevada, the legislature is currently considering a measure that would require a private employer with 50 or more employees to provide paid leave to each employee. Just last week, the Nevada Senate passed Senate Bill 166 to ensure equal pay for equal work and penalize employers who practice paid discrimination. The Nevada Assembly will hear the bill soon, and I anticipate the bill will pass as well. Governor Sisolak said in his State of the State address he intends to make pay equity the law in Nevada, and our state will have a pay equity law. Moreover, when it comes to crimes against women, we continue to suffer from victim blaming, such as shame, stigma, and the ingraining of guilt upon the female victim. So where we're at now is we're only one state short of that ratification and putting women into the U.S. Constitution. 36 years, 36 years since Congress had a hearing on this issue that affects every single woman and man in this country. Without constitutional protection, pay disparities will continue to be allowed in this country because of the high obstacle of showing that there is intent to discriminate in order for a woman to prevail in court. This is real. 50% of the major breadwinners in families today are women with children. It is time for us to take this issue seriously. So Congresswoman Maloney of New York has always been uh, an incredible champion for the Equal Rights Amendment. Will you just tell us when your fight for the ERA began? Oh, gosh, Alyssa. I think I've always been fighting for equal rights, uh, uh, I've always uh, supported it, um, and uh, when I went into public life, I, I fought even more for it. My my late husband's uh, grandmother was the first cousin of Alice Paul, the author of the Equal Rights Amendment, who introduced it in uh, 1923 in Seneca, Seneca Falls, New York, and was one of the leading um, women who, who led us to the right to vote. So it was very much part of his, his home life and my home life. And, and what's more important than equal rights? What's more important? Nothing, especially, especially nowadays. And then we, uh, we flash forward to just a few months ago and the first hearing on the Equal Rights Amendment in 36 years. Wow. Why do you, why do you, why do you think it's taken so long? It, it, uh, it, it had a, a great deal of momentum, but, uh, after after it it failed, there was a time limit on it, and it and it did not meet that time limit. And we had to have thirty thirty eight states ratify, and only had thirty five. Uh, it it ignited again in the year of the woman in nineteen ninety two when Anita Hill spoke out about harassment and and discrimination. Uh, I've never seen women so. Uh, so electrified, they would run up to me and say things like, finally, someone is speaking out about mm. it. And then with this election this year, uh, Trump, with his election, he terrified people. He he literally ran on rolling back a choice and rolling back women's rights. And 
and women were uh, energized. The day after his inauguration, there were women marches all over the United Mm -hmm. States, not just in Washington, but all over the world. In New York City, we thought we would have roughly 10,000 people show up. Uh, The police department told me it was over 700,000 women, like-minded men, Mm. children, came out to march. We couldn't even march because the streets were so full you couldn't even move. It was such a such a, a movement. And after that came the Time's Up movement, uh, the Me Too movement, of which you are a great leader, and uh, all these women speaking out and demanding that something be done. Women are not waiting anymore. We demand what is right, full equality now. We demand that it be spelled out in the Constitution And you know how to spell it, E-R-A, now. What were you feeling when you were sitting in that that hearing, that historic hearing? What was it like for you? I was uh, deeply, deeply grateful. I I was really deeply grateful to a a Democratic majority in Congress. Mm. Most of the time I've been in Congress, I've been in the minority. And no matter how much you beg, we couldn't make it happen. Uh, but we had a shadow hearing because I couldn't get a hearing from the Republican majority. The year before, I had a shadow hearing. And Jerry Nadler, at that hearing, uh, announced that if we got the majority, a top on his agenda would be having a hearing, finally, an official federal hearing. That was the the shadow hearing that you gave such a, a forceful and, and moving uh, testimony Um, It was uh, electrifying, I thought, that hearing, our shadow Mm -hmm. hearing. But to finally have an official hearing and know that we will soon be getting a vote, moving it out of committee, uh, I I just uh, felt grateful that it had finally happened. And uh, it's something that I was a priority of mine when I went to Congress in 1992, (laughs) believe it or not, when we elected... uh, the largest class of women ever. It was exciting to see women walk down the aisle, not to get married, but to be sworn into the United States Congress. But this year, we we, uh, we elected over 100 women. Uh, and for the first time since I've been in Congress, uh, the Congress is pro-choice. So we have, a, we have momentum, we have strength, and we have so many uh, women that are committed to helping to pass it. It's a, it's a whole new day. So there are a lot of, of naysayers that say, well, why do we need the ERA? Why do we need more than the 14th Amendment? What do you say to those people? Because uh, it, it doesn't work. The, the, court, the cases have said the 14th Amendment does not protect women from discrimination. And uh, most of my time in Congress, I've spent a great deal of time just fighting to hold on to what we already accomplished. They're constant... Uh, efforts to roll back Title VII, equality of, of, of treatment and employment, Title IX, equality of treatment and, and education. Uh, Betsy DeVos is trying again during this administration. There are all these efforts to roll back. The only way you're guaranteed your rights is if you're in the Constitution. Uh, laws we pass will only be strictly enforced if they have constitutional backup. Uh, By enshrining women's equal rights in the Constitution, there'll be no question as to whether discrimination on the basis of sex is unlawful. And women's equality should not be dependent on which party controls Congress, who's in the White House, or who's on the Supreme Court. Our rights need to be based in a solid legal bedrock. And, And one of the things that I've worked on my whole life is equal pay for equal work. But the only way it will ever be enforced is if we have the Equal Rights Amendment where it can be enforced. It's that simple. If you have your rights in the Constitution, they can be enforced. The United States Constitution, the world's oldest written constitution, is also the only major written constitution in the world that lacks a provision declaring that men and women are equal. And now is the chance to correct that omission, that stain, that embarrassment about our Constitution through the ratification by just one more state of the 1972 Amendment. Just to give some examples, the French Constitution provides that the law guarantees to the woman in all spheres rights equal to those of men. 
The German Constitution provides that men and women have equal rights and that nobody shall be prejudiced or favored because of their sex. The Constitution of India provides that the state shall not discriminate against any citizen on grounds of sex, and every written constitution promulgated since World War II contains a sex equality provision, but not ours. Given the vital role the U.S. Constitution has played in inspiring and informing the written constitutions of other nations, this is a situation that cries out for correction. 84% of countries have women in a, a gender provision in their constitution, put women into their constitutions. And that's not just industrialized countries. I mean, we're talking like Afghanistan has a gender provision in their constitution, which we encouraged when they passed it. Exactly. So a lot of these places have these gender provisions and, and things aren't perfect in these countries. Um, but it really, again, reflects this basic value that men and women are equal. Um, and so when people say, well, why do we need it? Or what rights do men have that women don't have? Uh, that comes up a lot, especially if you're on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. And <clears throat> it's like a broken record. And so, well, first of all, the 14th Amendment was not designed uh, to protect on the basis of sex initially. Um, and like I said, it has a different level of scrutiny. So protections, for example, on the basis of race, on the basis of religion, on the basis of national origin, those are all given what's called strict scrutiny. So it's like the hardest level. It's very difficult to keep those laws on the books. Because of the Equal Rights Amendment, because at the time these cases were being litigated, uh, you know, if you've seen the RBG movie, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was litigating all these cases and trying to get a really strong protection on the basis of sex. Uh, because the Equal Rights Amendment was pending at the time, the Supreme Court essentially said, okay, well, if people want discrimination on the basis of sex to be unconstitutional, they can pass and ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which is currently pending before the states. In the interim, we'll create essentially a totally separate form of scrutiny that's lower. It's called intermediate scrutiny, and it's more difficult um, to prove that these laws discriminate. So you have to prove intent. Uh, you have to prove not just that it impacted a specific category of people, but that they intended it to be discriminatory, which is a much more difficult thing to prove. So because of this, a lot of these cases, uh, they have to meet this intermediate scrutiny, but not the highest level. So women aren't fully protected under this level of scrutiny, which is a shame. So the 14th Amendment does not go far enough uh, to protect women. And like I said, the Congress doesn't have the power to there, therefore enforce it. So it both gives the courts and Congress this higher or better power to protect women. You know what I always say when I hear those trolls on Twitter say, what what protections don't you have? You have the 14th Amendment. I always say, yeah, but the 14th Amendment was written well before the 19th Amendment. So clearly it wasn't made to cover women when we didn't even have the right to vote at that time, um, as, which is just, you know, common sense. And, and the fact that lawyers have been able to manipulate the 14th Amendment to also include women is great. But I think that part of, and I think that this is all philosophically wound up in the same sexism and systemic misogyny um, that, that Me Too is in sexual harassment and assault. Because to me, if we were part of the Constitution, if it actually said um, that, that you know, women, women have equal rights, I feel that, uh, you know, we wouldn't be considered less than. And I think that perception of less than is what enables uh, men um, to abuse their power. Yeah. And I think all of these arguments really, and, and someone mentioned it in the congressional hearing that was just had on the ERA, you know, men are going to use any excuse they can to exclude us from the Constitution because they don't think that we should have equal rights and they don't want us to have equal rights. So all of these different arguments, whether they be culture war arguments or you're already protected or all these different things, if we were truly already protected to the same level, then at worst, the Equal Rights Amendment would be repetitive and why not support it? But of course it's not and they don't want us to have full rights. 
Every time we're talking about someone has the same right as someone else, we're not talking about special rights here. We're talking about equal rights. And as I said before, the trajectory is moving in the right direction. And it's moving in the right direction because every time I have been in a discussion about equality, whether it's about racism, whether it's about sexism, whether it's about homophobia, every time we always parse words about whether or not someone has the right to equality. We, we ratified it because it was the right thing to do. I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit to the ERA and how it's led to your own advocacy work. I was already an activist for women. I I became an activist for women because of the Republican war on women that really amplified after uh, the 2010 midterms elections when the Tea Party got in and started rolling women's rights back. So with the Equal Rights Amendment, when I found out that we don't have full equality, um, it pushed me to, it, it actually gave me, it, it, I have a sense of purpose. Like before I was, I mean, I still had a purpose, but I was a little bit scattered. And now I feel like this is the one thing that brings it all together. Right. So whether it's reproductive rights or equal pay or pregnancy discrimination or violence against women, they all fall under. And, you know, th- there are so many laws right now um, in states where if a woman is raped, the rapist can um, sue her for for custody and even for money. And so I, I think that the Equal Rights Amendment is just some kind of like solid foundation that's going to, it's not going to solve all the problems right away, but it's going to be something that we can turn to and we can take to the Supreme Court and it can be cited so that when there is a federal case, the language in the Equal Rights Amendment is so very specific that it can't be denied. And that's the problem right now. If you're going to cite the 14th Amendment, which has been cited in many different court cases, uh, a lawyer can uh, turn turn things around or say, no, you know, I interpret it this way. It There's nothing in the 14th Amendment that mentions women. Male citizens is, is uh, in there three times. But there's nothing for women. So when it's when it's used in court it can be manipulated to sound like, well, no, not women. So I think the Equal Rights Amendment is like the bedrock to everything else. Let's talk a little bit about why women need to be put into the Constitution. Yeah, the Equal Rights Amendment is important for many reasons. Uh, I would say one that a lot of people talk about and shouldn't be overlooked is it's really a symbolic it's a symbolic victory for women because the Constitution is our most basic and foundational document. It really expresses what our core values are. Those include equality and freedom for everyone and all of these different rights that are enshrined in the Constitution. And if we ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, one of those values will be gender equality. So when a little girl reads the Constitution in her class in elementary school, she will read through that and she will know that men and women are equal. And I think that's a huge victory. I think the second reason we need the Equal Rights Amendment is legal. So we, right now, when women litigate cases uh, on the basis of sex, so if you're discriminated against because of your sex, you go all the way to the Supreme Court and the, the scrutiny is what's called the level of scrutiny that gender receives under the current uh, interpretation of the U.S. Constitution is a much lower form of scrutiny. That really just means it's easier to pass and keep sexist laws on the books. I always try to work in a bipartisan way. Every year that I've introduced the Equal Rights Amendment for 12 different Congresses, I've always had a Republican sponsors. Not enough. You need more. Uh, but it's uh, deeply divided. It's a very, uh, the Republican Party is very anti-woman. Uh, they want to keep women down and back. Quite frankly, I don't understand it. How in the world can we compete in the world economy if we don't have the best talents of all of our people uh, competing with others around the world? And uh, when I was little, all you needed was a, was a pencil. Now you have to have your computer and you're competing with everybody in the world. Uh, so it's it's a whole changed, it, it's going to happen. Let's go over some of the arguments against the Equal Rights Amendment, because there are many. There's the religious opposition. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I think a lot of times um, for a lot of, you know, I work on 
all different kinds of issues, um, child marriage in the U.S., uh, female genital mutilation, sexual assault, uh, constitutional equality. And a lot of this opposition comes up from really traditional or conservative groups and religious groups. And some of that opposition is fear that their beliefs or their way of life uh, will somehow be impeded by, by the introduction of equal rights. I understand that fear as a person who was raised very religious and uh, continues to have a robust spiritual life. I understand that fear. And I think that's part of the reason it's so salient or powerful is that people genuinely believe that they are going to be um, prevented from from religious practice. Um, but that is, you know, religious exemptions in, exist at almost every level in federal law. Religious groups aren't, you know, forced to hire people they don't want to hire. They're not forced to comply. Um, in many places, they're not forced to comply with discrimination laws. You know, there are exceptions in many cases for religions, and freedom of religion is very, 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 maybe some would say overly uh, and robustly protected in the United States. So I understand uh, the fear and where that comes from, but I don't think uh, that religious organizations would lose their ability um, to practice as they believe. And and some would also argue religious organizations should not be free to discriminate. Um, and, and so <clears throat> while I understand those concerns, I don't think uh, that they are, uh, you know, they're not going to materialize. Once again, our values are under attack by this proposed legislation. Despite claims of protecting women's interests, ERA will actually end up hurting women, and it would force equal representation of women in all military roles, regardless of their abilities. If passed, a future war would require women to be drafted just as men. It's concerning to me that the ERA treats women identically to men, not equally to men, lending to it the current fad of um, um, gender fluidity, and I think that's a real concern. Male opponents in the Senate called it the unisex amendment. They said it would destroy traditional man-woman relationships, weaken family ties, increase homosexuality, violate biblical teachings, and undermine thousands of state laws designed to protect women against life's hazards. Mississippi's John Stennis said women would have to put on combat boots and march off to fight wars just like men. North Carolina's Sam Irvin said women would be slaughtered and maimed by bombs and bullets just like men. I just want to go through some of the other opposition points. Uh, so just to give you a chance to tell our listeners why there is no reason to worry about any of these points. Um, the military. Yeah, I think another, um, this is another argument that came up a lot in the original fight for the ERA. So a lot of the scare tactics they were using, again, they're very salient. Like they were telling women, like, if we ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, you are going to be thrust onto the front lines of battle. If we ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, there are going to be rapists hiding in public bathrooms ready to prey on you. Like if we ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, you are not going to be able to practice your religion as you believe. So all of these arguments and scare tactics are actually very, uh, you know, if you're a vulnerable person, if you're a vulnerable woman, then these have a lot of sway. And so I think the military and the combat argument, um, it sort of arises still. But I mean, as we know, women serve in all combat roles already. Um, and, you know, it, actually in World War II, uh, the women were about to be drafted as nurses in the last days of World War II. Um, in 2016, the Senate, in fact, it was John McCain who was arguing for this bill. And he essentially said, you know, women already serve with great distinction in all aspects of armed forces. And he said, um, and so they, they passed a bill in the Senate that women be required to register for the selective service. And in October of 2017, the Pentagon re recommended that women register for the selective service. And then just this year, a federal judge held that um, 
essentially the male-only draft would be unconstitutional even under the 14th Amendment. So we don't even need the ERA. Courts are already saying that, um, uh, you know, a gender-segregated selective service is unconstitutional. And so regardless of ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, a reinstated draft would likely include everyone, not just men. Now, there, there is a, a long debate to be had about whether or not we should have a draft or whether or not, you know, the, the military industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just saying, regardless of how you feel about the military, essentially it has already been decided that, uh, that you cannot exclude women from the draft if it were to be reinstated. So that argument is really moot. Many would be surprised to know that as recent as 1996, women were not able to attend any and all colleges that they wanted to in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I realized this fact when I was sitting in my high school classroom, and I was in my JRTC class, one of the only women in that class, and we were watching the Virginia Military Institute decision on TV. It was in that moment that I realized that Virginia Military Institute, one of the top military colleges in the United States, one of the only institutes of higher learning that has the highest dropout rate of any college in the country, and that is not by accident, but by design, had spent millions of dollars to keep women out of its doors. And in that class, many of my fellow classmates, mostly male, had justifications such as, well, it's a well-known fact that women are biologically inferior to men, physically and intellectually. And that was not the place for a woman to be. And it was in that moment that I remember hearing Justice Ginsburg say, and I'm paraphrasing, that women can do all things if given the opportunity. And I stood up and I proclaimed that that was fact and that I was just as powerful and capable and smart as any man in that room. And all of the men got up and protested. And my best friend, who was going to go to West Point, he walked up to me and he said, I'm going to go to VMI with you because I want to be there to watch you when you fail. And that was his truth. That's what he believed. And so he went to VMI with me along with another male cadet. And when they got their head shaved bald, so did I. When they put on a man's uniform, I put on a man's uniform. And I marched and sweat and bled beside the hundreds of other male cadets. I stand before you now to say that I am proud that out of the other two male cadets to go, that I am the only one to walk across that Virginia Military Institute stage. It is something I'm very proud of. And so when people ask me, why am I carrying the Equal Rights Amendment? That is why. I understand sex discrimination. It's all too familiar to me. What do we want? You know, the amendment was written so long ago, almost 100 years ago, and was modeled after the 19th Amendment. And so it simply says, on the basis of sex. On the basis of sex doesn't mean now what it meant then. And so in a really positive way, I think the Equal Rights Amendment is broad enough, as currently written, to cover not only women, but all marginalized genders. And also I think there's a very good argument that it can cover uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So there's been a lot of different Supreme, or sorry, uh, district court and appellate court cases that have found that the discrimination on the basis of um, gender identity and the discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation 
are covered under the definition of sex, um, on the basis of sex. There's essentially a split in the circuits. That's what that's what it's called when basically different regions of the country disagree about how a law is going to be interpreted. So, for example, in the 11th Circuit, which is based in Atlanta, uh, they said that laws um, do not, you know, that... Um, these laws do not protect uh, sex discrimination um, on the basis of uh, sexual orientation. And then other circuits have said that they do. Um, and then in the Sixth Circuit, which is based in Cincinnati, they said that transgender people are protected, but other circuits have said that they don't. Um, so the court system that we have is very I guess, diverse and regional. And so different courts decide issues different ways. And then it would go all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decides, okay, if there's a split in these different circuits, how is how is this going to be interpreted? Once the Supreme Court decides, then the question is essentially over. And then all of the different circuits must interpret based on this Supreme Court precedent. So it's very important what they decide uh, coming up, but I think there's a really robust argument, and many of the lower courts have said, yes, of course, gender, you know, if someone is is uh, discriminating against a transgender person, of course this is discrimination on the basis of sex and should very clearly uh, be covered under our Constitution. And then, of course, if the if the court decision comes out as you know either neutral or positive uh, for us, that being people who support equality, uh, then I think that will have a lot of implication for how this phrase on the basis of sex will be interpreted once we have the Equal Rights Amendment and whether or not that will include transgender people. I think it's it's pretty clear that that's the trend of where the courts are going. Um, and I really, really hope for a positive outcome in these upcoming three cases. Um, but yes, I think that because again, it's this neutral t- phrase on the basis of sex that it can include not just women, but all marginalized genders. While the constitution says nothing about deadlines for amendments, Congress put a deadline on the equal rights amendment when it was passed in 1972. I am here to appeal to you to remove the 1982 deadline placed on Congress for the ratification of the ERA. Just because women didn't achieve full equality in America by 1978 or by 1982 doesn't mean they shouldn't have it today. There's a groundswell in this country. Women are being elected in record numbers. Women are rising up by the millions and saying they will not be sexually assaulted. They will not be paid less. They will not be treated as subhuman, and they will have their voices heard. Some people think women do have constitutional protections because of the 14th Amendment. But when asked about this, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia said, certainly the Constitution doesn't require discrimination on the basis of sex. The question is whether it prohibits it. It doesn't. So a recent Supreme Court justice interpreted the Constitution as saying it did not prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. So whether you agree with him or not, the fact remains, this is how a recent Supreme Court justice interpreted women's rights in our Constitution. And this is why we need to amend the Constitution and leave no room to question if women have full constitutional equality because women's protections cannot be left to interpretation alone. People accuse the left of being very scattered and, you know, long, no long-term vision, no plan. What is it concretely that we want? For the women's movement, the Equal Rights Amendment has to be our long game. It has to be the thing that we all agree is going to put us into the Constitution and is going to be the, the anchor from which we defend our rights for the next hundred years. That's our long game. Okay, can you just explain to everybody what the process is moving forward in the timeline? Like, what what happens next? What happens next is that uh, we have two bills before uh, Congress right now. One is Jackie Spears, which removes the time limit. Congress put in a time limit. That time limit expired. But if we can put in a time limit, we can remove it. And we have constitutional scholars who say that we will prevail at the Supreme Court. The opposition says that uh, that there was a time limit and, and therefore uh, it, it, you have to start all over again. So I've introduced a bill that goes back and starts all over again. In other words, all of our bases are covered. We either win 
with the three-state solution, adding three more states and lifting the time limit, or we go back and start all over again, which I think will be a much easier task than what the women faced before us, because uh, we've already gotten 38 states or 37 states to ratify it. Um, It would then be voted out of the out of the, uh, the the committee, it would go to the floor of Congress, be debated. It would pass the floor of Congress, go to the Senate, go through the Judiciary Committee, pass the Senate, go to the President for his signature, and and uh, for removing the time limit. But we are we are saying and believing that if we just get one more state to ratify, which we believe will be Virginia. Uh, then, then it is ratified, and it then goes by law to the archivist of the country. He is a gentleman who was appointed by President Obama, and he could then claim and say that it, it's it's ratified. It's part of our constitution. He has decided that he's more of a functionary and appointed, so he has written the uh, Justice Department to ask them what he should do if the ratification comes to Mm. him. In any event, it will either be ratified where we will claim it's ratified. It will then be sued by opposition and, and will go eventually to the Supreme Court. If you look at any constitution that has been written since 1950, you will find in it a statement that men and women are equal before the law. So I have three granddaughters. I would like to be able to take out my pocket constitution and say that the equal citizenship stature of men and women is a fundamental tenet of our society. Like free speech, the women's equal right to do whatever her talent and hard work enable her to do. I'd like that to be in the Constitution. For me personally, passing the ERA means that I can tell my daughter that in the greatest document in all the world, she has the same rights as anyone else. Oh, gosh, I, I can't think of anything, Alyssa, that would be more meaningful to women, uh, children, families in our country than, than uh, passing the Equal Rights Amendment. What's more important, uh, if women have equal rights, they're protected. There have been so many Supreme Court cases that clearly state that we're not protected uh, and, and we can't enforce uh, uh, civil penalties for, for rape in many cases that have gone to the Supreme Court. And, and a case that just passed recently, which is outrageous and I think shows fundamentally how much it's needed and how we're not protected. It, it would mean so much that I almost don't even have words because uh, this country has never had an equal rights amendment. And so since we were fighting so hard, and I mean, I just came to it late. I came to it in 2012. Um, I, like so many others, was under the impression that we had already had one. And so, you know, there is this false sense of security right now with so many Americans thinking that we have one. So to me, it would just mean that moving forward, women in this country wouldn't necessarily have to go through what we're going through right now. When when the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were happening, I know that I and so many other women in this country were triggered and felt scared and upset. And I'm experiencing those same feelings right now, watching all of these anti-abortion ban, you know, anti-abortion laws and the abortion bans and and these ridiculous laws that are not based on any fact at all. And so I think that understanding that there's going to be protection for future generations would would just be all this, it's everything I need. You know, I mean, I don't have children, but I, I, I have a sister and I have a niece and I, I have, there are millions of women in this country that were, there were, let me just put it to you this way. There were a lot of women in the second wave who fought very hard, just like with Alice Paul in the first wave. All these women fought so hard so that you and I could have certain rights and we could have the right to vote. And so for me, it would be meaningful that I've played a very small part in the Equal Rights Amendment uh, education. It would personally be satisfying for me, but it would give me that satisfaction to know that 
women and fu- you know the future generations are going to have protection and that they don't necessarily have to deal with this crazy kind of atmosphere where we're 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 watching uh, a, a man who was accused of rape going to the Supreme Court when we're watching lawmakers write all these bills that are anti-women and that that they're passing. Because I was raised in such a conservative culture and I never really saw women and men being equal. I saw women having secondary roles. I saw women being subordinate to men. I saw women, you know, having what they call separate but equal tasks and jobs and and purpose in life. And so for me, the Equal Rights Amendment means in my own constitution, it is very clearly stated that I am equal to any other person. I am equal to any other American. And so that's important for me. And from a legal perspective, it creates an entirely new avenue for us to litigate for our rights, for all of these incredible congresswomen who are going and are creating seas of change in our in our system. It creates an, a, a totally new avenue from which they can pass laws to protect us. So for me, I, the way I describe it is... The Equal Rights Amendment is if you find a bottle and there's a genie in it, and the genie comes out and you want to wish for women's rights, but this is basically the Equal Rights Amendment is the equivalent to wishing for a thousand new wishes. It's the go-around. It's the way to say, this is what we want, because from this, we can build the scaffolding to protect all of us. To me, passing the ERA would mean that all people will be treated equal at home, All people will be treated equal in their workplace, and all people will be treated equal under the United States Constitution, because everyone deserves to be treated equally. The passing of the ERA would mean there is no place for gender discrimination in the United States Constitution. For me, it means three things. Number one, the hope and optimism that a country based on liberty and freedom can inch closer to that promise. Number two, As an American of African ancestry, one step forward for our sisters is one giant leap for all of us. And number three, that my pre-civil rights mom who went through a bunch of stuff to get her PhD and get paid respectively can rest in peace a little more peacefully. Congresswoman, what what can my listeners do to help move this forward? Is there a call to action? I, I would say we have two bills in Congress now. They should ask their members of Congress to co-sponsor them. That gives more weight and their senators to co-sponsor them. Both bills are sponsored by Menendez. My bill sponsored by Menendez in the Senate. And Ben Cardin is carrying uh, Jackie Spears. But we need to get the co-sponsors, we need to move it forward and and expressing their support for it to the Speaker and the Minority Leader of the House. The first thing we have to do is get it through the House and then the Senate. But I feel that the, the, the energy is there, that women are more energized than, than we've been in generations and we're marching, protesting, running for office, and more importantly, uh, getting elected. And we're on the verge, absolutely on the verge of ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment. My name is Alyssa Milano. I do not have equal rights under our Constitution. I have a four-year-old daughter named Bella. She does not have equal rights under our Constitution. If my daughter and I lived in Iceland or Rwanda or Vietnam, we would have equal rights under their constitutions. But we live in the United States of America, where we do not have equal rights under our own. That is because for all of our country's history, it has considered people like us, that is to say, people who are not white men, to be second-class citizens. Our country has allowed those men to use our founding documents to preserve their power and privilege while denying women protection from the consequences. Because 
again, in the United States of America in the year 2019, women do not have equal rights. Wouldn't you agree that's absurd? Most people don't even realize that this country, which claims to be the greatest country in the world, and this document, which claims to guarantee equality to all who live here, does not extend that guarantee to women. According to polls conducted by the ERA coalition, 80% of Americans think that women already have equal rights under the Constitution. They assume that provision is already there because, of course, it's absurd for it not to be. What's more, they think it's there because they think it should be. The same polls tell us that 94% of Americans support constitutional equality for women. My question is, who are the other 6%? And to be clear, that question is not a rhetorical one. The text of the amendment we propose reads, women shall have equal rights in the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. If you don't agree with those words, if you do not believe that women should have equal rights, I want to know who you are. I think we all deserve to know who you are. We deserve to know who you are so that we can make the choice not to do business with you or work for you or entrust our children to you or cast our votes for you. Listen, we are human beings, fully deserving of equal protections, equal opportunities, and equal rights. And I believe we have finally gotten the message across. When we are treated as anything less... We deserve equal recourse. We have waited hundreds of years for this moment. But if we want to ensure it is a beginning and not an end, we need to use it to launch a new era for the Equal Rights Amendment. By enshrining our equal rights in the United States Constitution, the ERA would guarantee women are protected by the full force of federal law. By passing an equal rights amendment, it would, for the first time in our country's history, open a pathway toward true gender equality. The ERA would set a norm for equal pay for equal work so that women can be full economic actors in our society. It would protect pregnant women from discrimination so that we do not have to make the impossible choice between earning a paycheck and having a family between making a living and living in our own bodies. It would require states to enforce laws against gender violence so that police can no longer turn their backs on women like Jessica Lanahan or girls like her daughters, whose deaths were preventable and whose heartbreaking story reminds us of the cost of our inaction. For all of these reasons for all of these women, for Jessica's daughters, for all of our daughters, we cannot afford to wait any longer. Ratifying the ERA would be a statement of principle. It would send a message to our daughters. It would send a message to our sons. It would send a message to every state in the country. And it would send a message to the world. These rights are our birthright. But enshrining them in the Constitution is our responsibility. That's because in a democracy, progress doesn't happen automatically. Democracy requires action by us because at the end of the day, it is us. In 1776, the year our country declared independence, Abigail Adams wrote to her husband, John, urging him to remember the ladies, to be fair to us as he helped write the new code of laws for a new nation. Today, 242 years later, we no longer have to wait for anyone else to grant us our rights. We are standing up for each other. We are marching in streets. We are the ones holding the pen. You and I are lucky that we get to be the ones to live through this new era. But with that comes responsibility to ensure this moment lives up to its promise. My name is Alyssa Milano. 
and I do not have equal rights under our country's constitution. And I'm part of a movement that's not going anywhere until the foundational document of our country insists loudly and clearly to us and to the world that women shall have equal rights in the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. And until we are promised once and for all that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Do you think that you deserve the same protection as little boys? Yes. That's right. Are you, are girls and boys equal? Yes. That's right. I would even say that you are faster than most of the boys on your <laughs> baseball team. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. You're pretty fast. You can do anything. You make me proud. <laughs> sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry.